Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry Hutchinson with uh, John Gee, my co-host, and Kevin Christensen. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Good evening. Kevin, are you there? Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Anyway. Technical difficulties still Maybe, stand by. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, we want to welcome you all while we sort out our phone line situation to the Interpreter Foundation radio broadcast this evening. It's uh, January the 8th, and it's our first broadcast for our group for the year. And uh, we've had a couple of weeks off from Interpreter Foundation radio. First of all, we want to tell you that we're brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, which is a 50C3 corporation. 501. 501C3, yes. Which essentially means that uh, all of your donations are tax deductible, and this is a volunteer organization. I think it's growing larger all the time, John. Don't ask me. I, I'm just one of the. We just work here. <laughs> anyway, there are a lot of different projects, and this is just one of them. And uh, so every Sunday, a different group of hosts will get together and talk about issues in support of the doctrines and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we believe that, that is, there is an element of that that can be done through scholarship, and that's what the Interpreter Foundation does. And so if you support the Interpreter Foundation, uh, just feel free to make a donation, whatever you can afford, or just feel free to support us by listening, liking. We're on Instagram. We're on. I think we're on TikTok now. Some of the Interpreter things are on TikTok. I'd We're not TikTok, TikTok stars, <laughs> so we wouldn't know. But uh, anyway, every week, if you subscribe to the Interpreter Found Journal, to the Foundation Journal, uh, you'll get at least one article or more of uh, scholarly topics on various things. We'll talk about some of those later in the program. So this evening, we have uh, broken our program into four segments. The first one will be uh, Come Follow Me where we will be talking about uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5. Yes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and that's the uh, study for January 30th through February 5th, and that's going to be released on the uh, website in a few weeks. Uh, the rest of our broadcast this evening, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go with our gospel advocacy section second in the second half hour of the program, and we'll be talking about some issues about the Book of Mormon and and uh, some of the eight claims that it was uh, plagiarized. Language is be yeah. a good mm -hmm. uh, way to think about it. Okay, and then after that, of course, we're also going to go with the uh, in the third half hour. We're going to kind of combine that with our fourth half hour because we're going to be. Uh, dealing with the uh, Answering Gospel Questions course from the Institute Manual. And Lesson 6 is Diversity and Unity in the Church. 
And that opens up a lot of possibilities, especially because in our last half hour, we're going to be talking about the most recent interpreter article, as well as uh, certain other things. But one thing we are going to cover, I'd like to cover in the last half hour, is uh, John Gee, who is our co-host this evening, just completed his first semester of teaching the Book of Mormon at BYU. And uh, we were going to talk about some things and how it went. We also are going to talk about a new book from Oxford University called by uh, Stephen Bullivant called Nonvert, The Making of Ex-Christian America. So before we begin, I, uh, well, actually we are beginning. <laughs> so John, while I play with this uh, connection for Kevin, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, this Matthew 4 and Luke 4 sections, and there's some unique material in each one of them. Yeah. So Matthew 4 uh, deals most of what we're mostly familiar with are the temptations of Christ that are listed there, and this happens just after Jesus' baptism. He's led up into the wilderness, and um, and Luke 4 is a parallel to that, but also gets into some of the calling of the 12. Um, and we can uh, look at that a little bit here. So um, if I can see my scriptures and talk in the microphone at the same time. So Jesus uh, suffers three temptations, and we often think the first is... Um, He's commanded to turn stones into bread. He's been fasting for 40 days. And uh, and so there's an appeal to his, uh, f- his physical needs. Uh, and then the second temptation in, in Matthew, um, Luke switches. Second temptation in Matthew is to gain uh, notoriety and popularity by throwing throwing himself off of the top of the temple and having and being borne up by angels. And the third temptation is to uh, is when he's led up and shown all the kingdoms of the world and. Um, Satan offers him all of that if he'll bow down and, and worship him. And in all three cases, Jesus deflects the temptation by referring to Scripture um, and specifically passages in the Law of Moses. And and so part of that is is the the use of scripture as a way to get out of temptation because the scripture that they cite is clear on on what should be done in in each case um, and in two of the cases uh or at least in in one of the cases uh uh, Satan also quotes scripture at Jesus, and um, Jesus responds uh, by quoting his own scriptures. Uh, so that's the the setup, and then we get the calling of the 
the twelve, particularly uh, the calling of Peter and uh, James and John, and so that ends up the the section for for Matthew for Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke, uh, of course, um, also deals with the temptations, also deals with um, the calling of of the twelve, but also but sends in a uh, tells a story about an episode where after the temptations he goes into um, Nazareth. Well, he for goes into Nazareth and he reads this the scripture and announces that uh, one of the prophecies that Isaiah had made about the Messiah he is the fulfillment of them and uh, the reaction and this is in his hometown is for everybody to try to throw him off a cliff uh, and then he goes down into um, into Capernaum, and uh, he, he meets Simon Peter. He heals a leper, and he also uh, heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law, mm-hmm. um, which turns out to be, a, for us, not so much a big thing, but this was, um, this caused an interesting problem in the early church in the third century when the there's an ancretite movement and they uh were very uh the ancretites were hostile to marriage and so this caused a problem for them because they wanted to claim that since all of the other there's no family mentioned of any of the other uh, apostles that all the apostles weren't married because they were advocating and the same and no for one Jesus. should and and the same for Jesus, but the the Peter gave them a problem, and one of Paul's letters also gave them a problem um, because Paul addresses his wife in Philippians, and um, and the early Christians didn't have a good response for that for the the ones who. Who, other than to say, well, no, that we don't really think that that's Paul's wife, um, and then you, in uh, Luke chapter five we get the calling of uh, of Peter to um, be a fisher of men, uh, along with James and John. Uh, we get and later. We get Matthew, and we get Matthew later in that verse and um, and the we get the party where uh, they come and uh, some there's some dispute with the Pharisees about uh, should he be associating with publicans and and sinners and his well that's kind of the th- one of the different themes of the gospels that I've that I've noticed and that people often bring out um, let me see check in the, our Zoom line, if you will, and see if Kevin Christensen has been able to join us. Are you there, Kevin? I can hear hear you. I hear some kind of static. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's me. Well, I don't. 
We I will don't know proceed. what to do. We'll keep working on that. But uh, I, I was going to bring up the thing about <clears throat> the, the visit to Nazareth because none of the other Gospels seems to talk about that. Well, but it's this, unique this is, to Luke. This is Luke, right? Mm-hmm. So let's think a little bit about Luke. Luke is a companion of Paul. Luke seems to be a Gentile, mm-hmm. but he associates with he accompanies Paul, and he accompanies Paul when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. And Paul is sits three years between Jerusalem and Caesarea, uh, the not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea Maritima. Um, and so he's under arrest there for a long time. And Luke has got these other accounts. Matthew and Mark, and he, uh, but he has a chance to go around and talk to a lot of. He got, gets to. He says he talked to the eyewitnesses, but he especially seems to have talked to the family. Now, um, maybe Mary. Uh, that's a possibility. Certainly, James, the brother of Jesus, who is a leader in Jerusalem. And and maybe others of the family, and so he has a lot of family stories, or he's the one who has family stories that none of the other gospel writers have, and so this thing taking place in Nazareth in Jesus's hometown, this is a ex- uh, place where he seems to have pulled in one of these family stories, and of the people who were there at the time and saw some of the things that were done. Um, and at the time, Jesus' brothers don't believe, at the time the story takes place, Jesus' brothers don't believe him, but later they change that. And so he, I think that's one of the reasons why Luke has this account and the other gospel writers don't. Um, so mm-hmm. Matthew and John have the advantage. They've got eyewitness testimony. They can say, yes, this is what we saw and and put that together, and these are the things Jesus told us. But um, Luke has got a, additional stories from the family. But this, this story in Luke in particular is pretty well considered to be one of the main themes of this particular gospel, and that is Jesus goes into the synagogue, he reads the prophecy of Isaiah, mm-hmm. which essentially is Melchizedek in, in nature, if I can say it yeah. that word, and then he says, this day it's fulfilled. What, what struck me as I was studying this in preparation was that they, um, the people were happy to listen to him proclaim himself to be the Messiah. And when they wanted him to perform the miracles that he did in other places, he said, well, I'm not going to do that. The The record is unclear as to why. But then he gave them two examples involving Gentiles. He gave them Elijah and the widow, mm. and then he gave them Elisha and Naaman right. being cleansed of leprosy. And then he said, there were lots of other lepers in Israel. There were lots of other widows in Israel, but he he sent the prophets to these two to receive the miracles. Uh, and then the people were upset. So they were, 
it's almost like they were okay with their local guy being the Messiah, but they were not okay with him not doing the miracles there, and that's what inflamed them. At least that's the sense that I get from reading this. Well, okay, so I'm looking at at it here, and it says, um, so he quotes the... It quotes the passage from Isaiah, which is particularly uh, poignant um, because it actually does mention, it uses the root for Christ in there and anointed me to preach to the poor. And, um, and then he... It says he closed the book, and they were surprised um, because of um, the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And there's like, uh, you know, isn't this Joseph's son? So they're not expecting that, and... Then he says, um, he's the one who brings up the, uh, that he's not going, he says, he said unto them, ye shall surely say unto me this parable, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. This is, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he then he cites those passages, um, and they get upset. And um, we don't know enough of the circumstances. Um, okay, so Nazareth is at the time is supposed to be a rather small, uh, small town. Um, how many people are there in Nazareth? Normal uh, estimates I've seen are in the low hundreds. So what sort of miracles are they expecting? Um, You know, who, do they have somebody in mind um, that he was supposed to heal? Uh, how many blind or leopard, leprous people do you have in a settlement of a couple of, say, you know, two to four hundred is at least some of the estimates mm-hmm. are that low. And if it's that low, how many of these people are there? Um, and so that's a, that's at least a question. Didn't like what he said and... Uh, but he gives Elijah and Elisha. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about, of course, Elijah and Elisha is that they're northern prophets. They're up from the area not too far from Galilee, not down in Judea. So that's a, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Uh, but it he he then does perform a miracle 
by when they want to throw him off the cliff, they he passes through the midst of them. He go he leaves, and uh, and that's its own little miracle. Yeah, and then the other thing is the um, <coughs> quote from Isaiah himself. And we typically, you know, as I was looking at it, the the there's a little bit from it in from Isaiah 58, which is the passage on fasting that that gets thrown into that. And the rest of it, of course, is from Melchizedek, and it ties in with the Melchizedek scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's it's very powerful about the anointing and the uh, freeing from prison and from oppression and uh, several other things that are miraculous and strong in nature. Yeah, um, but it's also extremely messianic. You look at, so the, um, so the uh, term used here is uh, mashach, to anoint me, to, uh, so it's as God has, Anointed me, he's made me a messiah, the Messiah, mm-hmm. and then he talks about um, to um, to announce good tidings to the poor, as he sent me, and um, all of these are are. I mean this. You can find it in the English if you're looking for it, but you don't have to look for it very hard in either the Hebrew or the Greek. Because the Greek echrisen is the same root as Christos. Um, of course, Mashiach is, is the verb for Mashiach, Messiah. Um, so, both, so he's clearly using mm-hmm. a, a messianic text. Um, well, that. we're we're going to go a little longer in this segment while we still are hoping to get Kevin on the line. I know he can hear us, but we can't hear him. Anyway, um, oh, oh I hear wait something? a minute! I thought I heard him. Kevin, are you there? Yeah, well, I I can hear you. Yes, well, well, we, we can, can hear, hear now. Hear you? That's great. We want to hear. <laughs> yeah, we can oh, hear yeah, you. Yeah, that's say. So. Um, Let's jump in, Kevin, because I know that you had some things you wanted to say about this Melchizedek angle and also how it tied in with the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah, this, this is, I think it's really interesting, uh, just independently. Um, I'm trying to find my page of the, this, I've got a, a little Betsy scrolls here in my hands here, and I was trying to look for the exact passage. But it was, it was a discovery, I think it's published, uh, what, in the 80s? It's fairly, well, yeah, fairly recent publication from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it, it's, a, it's a collection of biblical prophecies kind of strung together, but it also gives timing. You know, and it's saying basically that in the 10th Jubilee since uh, the return from exile, that that's when the Messiah would come, and, and, when, and it quotes a number of biblical passages uh, with messianic intent, and as you pointed out, one of them is Isaiah 61, which has been <laughs> really very interesting because this is saying that that uh, Jesus's ministry did happen during the time when uh, this messianic messianic figure was expected, and 
one one of the passages associated with that expectation with at that particular time was I did Oops, looks like we no. cut out. Um, it's di- directly announcing, I'm the guy. <laughs> no uncertain terms. So that it, it's, it makes sense for him to use it. And there's the uh, also interesting ties between the Melchizedek text and the traditions that Alma is sharing in uh, Alma 13. Uh, although in the Book of Mormon, another quotes Isaiah 61, uh, I did notice when I was looking through uh, Alma 13 that there are a number of shared themes in there uh, about priesthood and garments and authority and, uh, and messianic things. So there are things there that suggest um, not so much text, uh, textual dependence, but coming from a common tradition in which these things had been associated for some time. So... That was one of the ways that the people recognized him. But did were you, you were able to hear our conversation earlier, though, about Parts of it. the reaction? Yeah, they, it, it was really yeah, well, a the reaction, reaction because it, he would do the miracle. Yeah, it, and it, it's one thing to talk about the prophecies in the abstract, and it's quite another thing for someone to show up and physically say that this is this is me. I'm the one, and. Um, and that's kind of the reaction to get. And of course, in the in the New Testament, that's when Jesus makes the comment about a, be, a prophet being without honor in his own house. And uh, how did that tie and, in with the Book of Mormon? Well, there's some of that too. Uh, like when when Helaman's talking about uh, Samuel is talking about that, and, and Helaman talked about you know prophets being rejected by their own. And, and if the prophet comes along and says, "Do this and do that, all is well with you," and just carry on the way you've been you've been doing, and you're great the way you are, that's more acceptable than someone who comes up and says uh, <clears throat> things need to change and it needs to start with you and this is all real and <laughs> it's uh, has eternal significance and that becomes something that people want to wrestle with a bit more in some cases so it's and you know I think I think it's uh, just interesting what's come out of this and I know that uh, Ma- Margaret Barker was especially interested in the implications of this Melchizedek text because she sees it as as uh, providing a context for exactly what happens in Nazareth there and also you know, the use of Melchizedek in Hebrews text and uh, the reasons for some of the reactions and some of the prophecies and you know, things that are going on. She sees this all as, as in fitting in a tradition, because we've got the text, but we don't know exactly when the association between the quoted biblical prophecies was made. You know, it could have been recent, but it could have been a very old tradition. You know, we don't know what, from what we've got, but we do know that there was that specific expectation and a specific tie between the Melchizedek traditions, uh, which, you know, would point back to the first temple and, and, uh, and the time and the dating and the place and what was said. And this is something that has come, it's been a plain and precious thing that's come out since uh, both the publication of the Book of Mormon and uh, the restoration of the church. So it's it's really interesting material. So jumping back, though, to the temptations in the wilderness, is there is there a particular significance in the fact that the temptations are different between Matthew and Luke's account? 
Mainly the order, right? Um, yeah, it's the order. Yeah. I mean, but is there something that stands out from that, or is that just maybe the particular emphasis of the authors? Yeah, I, I think it's just the, the way that, you know, before things get written down, they're kept in memory, and memories have quirks, and we just need to accept that and not worry over much about it, because, you know, the basic premise is the same, and the temptations are addressing things that we all have to face, uh, you know, lust of the flesh, desire for power, desire for fame. And I think it's really interesting that, um, again, that, that uh, in DNC 93, we've, we've got that statement that Jesus didn't know who he was fully before his baptism. And after his baptism, that's when he received the fullness of the Father. And that's when he goes into the wilderness. And that's when the temptations come. They're all prefaced by, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God. At this moment, when he's just wrestling with the implications of all of this, when it's all new and fresh and unsettling, certainly, that's the moment when this argument is thrown at him. So I think that's really interesting. Um, no. So, go ahead, John. Uh, yeah, the, these these temptations are, uh, you know, they're you compare them, say, with. Uh, First Nephi uh, 23, where he talks about um, power, gain, popularity, the lust of the flesh. So he starts off with the appeal to the flesh, and he goes for the popularity, and then he goes for the power. Um, and in all cases, he rejects those, and... Uh, but those those sorts of temptations face us all, and uh, we're given an example once. I think of the do- phrase in the Doctrine and Covenants: "He suffered temptations and gave them no heed." Uh, here, he he doesn't give them heed. Uh, we don't do as well. Well, this is a this is a template for us, I think, to avoid temptation. Yeah, it and, is. and I find it interesting that in every instance he responds with scripture. Yeah, and he follows the words of the prophets. He follows the scriptures, and he uses them to reinforce his willingness to forego what's being placed in front of him. And and I think that's an example all of us can follow. Whether we could quote the scripture or not, we essentially know, thanks to the light of Christ within all of us, as well as, you know, the teachings of the prophets and the scriptures, what's right and wrong. In most instances, I think it's pretty safe to say. Yeah. So what are some other things that people can do from or take from this story, maybe, Kevin, that, uh, that would help them to resist that temptation? Well, as in all things, if we have an example... You know, if, if someone who does the right thing in front of us, there's, the power of example is, uh, is, can be transformative. And, uh, some, and like in, in 3rd Nephi when he says, all the things which I have done shall you also do. You know, I have, I've set an example for you. There's, there's that 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life, where he's you know, repeating this, and he's come down here to demonstrate through his actions how we can do this, whether it's um, you know, the baptismal covenant, you know, but when he says to John, who's a little bit overwhelmed by that, you know, that's to fulfill all righteousness, said, you know, setting that kind of example, and then, and I think it was uh, was President McKay that had, you know, gone through in one of his talks that went through, you know, how these kinds of temptations are, are the kinds of things that we all have to deal with, and to see, that, like I said, he has set an example. He's shown how it's done and and what's really important in this. So I think yeah, it's, I think it's so, also helpful, Kevin, for us to note that the Joseph Smith translation in this chapter has the Spirit taking Jesus into the wilderness, and he's not mm-hmm. leading him into temptation. And this is something that's often been misinterpreted in the scriptures or misunderstood. But even the one where it says this, that the devil took him on a pinnacle of a high mountain, Joseph Smith through his inspiration, said, no, the Spirit took him on the high mountain, showed him all these kingdoms, and then Satan comes along and says, oh, by the way, I'll give you all these things if you'll follow and worship me. And this is an instance with some parallels to Moses, because uh, Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, Moses was on Sinai fasting for 40 days, and according to the book of Moses, Satan appeared to him to Moses on the mountain and said, Mm -hmm. worship me, I'm the son of man. And Moses was able to resist that temptation because he saw that Satan lacked the glory of the Father. And therefore he did not fall down and worship him. There's some very interesting parallels here. And there's a a book by, I want to say Dale Allison, called The New Moses, which in a sense is... The Matthean parallels, or Matthew's parallels in particular, between Moses and Jesus, which kind of is a fulfillment of the prophecy that another prophet like me shall be raised up unto you. Oh. So there's there's all of that, but but once again, there's a there's a similarity between the temptations that Moses suffered on the mountain as well as Jesus. So I I think that's it. And the other thing I think we can take from this, of course. <clears throat> before we move on to our next segment is the um, the fact that uh, Jesus went into the wilderness to commune with God. He was led there by the Spirit, but he needed peace. He needed, he needed to figure those things out. And I think Kevin made an important point earlier where he said that before his baptism, Jesus really didn't. In fact, most of the literature, even you know the the Gnostic literature or things that don't always comport with uh, you know the basic principles and ordinances of the gospel, seem to seem to follow that theme. That when Jesus was baptized and came up, that's when the fullness of the Father was revealed to him and his mission and and all the rest. Um, and I, I just think that, that that there's some parallels there with Second Nephi, because Nephi says, after you're baptized, you have now entered the straight and narrow path, and but is all done. No, you have to press forward, feasting upon the words of Christ. And you know, Jesus didn't have his, the words of Christ to feast on, but he obviously feasted on the words of the prophets 
on the words of Jehovah that were revealed in the old, you know, in the Hebrew scriptures that they had at the time. So I, I think that that's another factor that we can add.